Mormons, this is Joanna Brooks, fellow traveler in Mormon feminism and author of the Book of Mormon Girl, with a special request for you. You know, since the beginning of the Mormon feminist movement, we have published our own books, we have supported our own art projects, our own intellectuals, and I'm asking you one more time to pony up in support of one of our Mormon feminist sisters who I think is the most exciting and soon to be most accomplished public historian in Mormonism today. That's our girl, Lindsay Hanson Park, who tears it up on this podcast each week, bringing us incredible insights about the Mormon past, including polygamy and its persistent influence on the way we live our lives today. Lindsay does her thing, bringing us brilliance for pennies. What does she make? Cents on the dollar that every male Mormon podcaster makes, if that. It's up to us. It's up to us. If Mormon feminist history matters to you. If having incisive, intelligent critique of racial inequality, gender inequality in the Mormon church matters to you, will you support this podcast? As Mormon feminists have always done for each other, we've always published our own books. We've always supported our own arts. Let's pitch in to support one of our own doing crucial intellectual work that's going to stand the test of time. That's right. Go to Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast.org look for the donate button and use paypal or whatever other means are at your disposal to become a monthly subscriber join me in becoming a subscriber to this podcast just ten dollars a month twenty dollars a month and you can hold your head high and know that you're contributing to a long history of mormon sisters doing it for themselves thank you Two, three, go. Feminist. Mormon. Housewives. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Feminist Mormon Housewives podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, bringing you another episode in the Year of Polygamy series where we try to understand and untangle the practice of Mormon plural marriage and see how it affects our lives today. And I'm so honored to have on the podcast someone uh, that you've probably all heard a lot about because you've associated his work probably with Joseph Smith and Nauvoo polygamy. But what you might not know about my uh, expert tonight is that he is also really well versed, really well versed in Mormon fundamentalism. And so I am so honored to have Brian Hales on the podcast. Brian, can you say hello? Hello. Thanks for having me, Lindsay. You're very kind. Yeah. And I was just telling Brian that I'm really impressed that he's able to, and Mormon studies is so fraught, you know, with robust discussions. And I, I know that all academia is like that, but, uh, you do a really good job in, uh, interacting and, with your critics. So I appreciate that. Well, thank you. Uh, there's a lot of good people who disagree with me, and, and that's just fine. It's fun when we can exchange ideas. Can you tell us how you got in, uh, got interested in this subject? And then we can talk about some of the books you've written. Sure. Um, I get asked that all the time. Um, I have a family member who was excommunicated from the church in 1989 for joining the All Red Polygamy Group, the AUB. And at that point, uh, this member the, sent me the the information that she had been reading, and and I read it, and I I prayed the prayer. I said, if this is true, you know, show me. And and I could never get comfortable with their authority uh, claims, and we can talk about that more later if you want, Lindsay. But 
um, I sincerely wanted to know. And at, at that point, I, I realized that no one had really written any kind of a history of the Mormon fundamentalist movement. They had not uh, published anything that examines their claims. That uh, And so I, I went to work and published a book in 1992 with Max Anderson. And uh, But anyway, that, that was the beginning for me. Yeah, so you have, um, and tell me if I'm missing anything, you have Modern Polygamy and Mormon Fundamentalism, The Generations After the Manifesto, and you have a book called The Priesthood of Modern Polygamy and LDS Perspective that you did with Max Anderson, and then The Doctrines of Mormon Fundamentalism also with Max Anderson, and Is Fundamentalism Fundamental, Light, the Physical and Spiritual Nature of Light, the Veil and Trials and Understanding and Overcoming, but those last few are not about fundamentalism, correct? Yeah, that's that's correct. Cedar Fort and I did three books that are just on general LDS topics, but I've also done uh, three that were published. You mentioned a couple of titles that weren't published, but the uh, 1992 was um, The Priesthood of Modern Polygamy and LDS Perspective, and I, I tease people that my books are part of my full anesthesia services because I'm an anesthesiologist, <laughs> and, and if ever that were true, that 1992 publication would fit. It's hard-hitting. But it's, it's, it's very biased and, and right to the point that uh, the polygamy authority change, uh, I'm sorry, the authority claims of, of the uh, primary groups, FLDS, AUB, really are, are not, uh, in my view, uh, very defensible historically or theolo- theologically. Well, I'm so excited to talk about that because we're moving into the sort of fundamentalism piece of our history, this sort of chronology that we're doing. And it's really, really complicated. And as I have mentioned on the podcast before, it's been really difficult and sort of heavy for me to to study this stuff. It's sort of weighing me down. And I find, I just find that I'm in this sort of funk, you know. And so how do you, and first of all, I do want to put point out that when we say fundamentalism, that's a broad brush, right? That covers all different groups. And so I don't mean to use it as a pejorative when I'm talking about some of the really terrible abuses. But tell us how you, how do you deal when with all that dark, dark stuff? Well, um, I'll, I'll be honest with you. First, let me be clarify the, the uh, Mormon fundamentalists prefer to be called fundamentalist Mormons. And I've hesitated to do that because they don't do missionary work. And if there, there's probably nothing more fundamental to the restoration of the missionary work. So I don't think they actually, even though they do practice polygamy, there are fundamental things they don't do. I, I call them Mormon fundamentalists. And in fact, if you look at any major religion, there are fundamentalists. There's Muslim fundamentalists. There's Catholic fundamentalists. And, and they, they very much fit the pattern. And, and whole books and series of books have been written on these. Mike Quinn actually donated a, a chapter to a, a a set of books that were talking about the fundamentalisms of the world. And, and so I call them Mormon fundamentalism because they really do fit the, uh, the pattern, uh, even as compared to other religious movements. Um, and, but to be honest with you on, on the topic of the darkness, I, I haven't seen as much uh, darkness maybe as, as you have encountered. I, I find in the fundamentalist movement uh, some really deep theological problems but a lot of really good people who have embraced it. Now, this would be a characterization up until probably Rulin All Red. Uh, we we have to take out uh, the LeBarons because they were they were very um, militaristic. And, that, that's how I'm referring to. I'm referring um, specifically to the Kingstons and the LeBarons. That's kind of where I find a re- some really hard stuff. 
Well, and the Kingstons are, are difficult because they they have amassed a, a huge amount of wealth, and they don't use it according to the law of consecration, even though it began, you know, ostensibly as being a, a manifestation of the United Order or law of consecration. And, and the accounts that I have seen for the Kingstons, there are a lot of intermarrying that has produced problems with the uh, children that are born, as well as uh, wives that have been neglected. So um, if you found that kind of element there, I, I would concur with in my research. And then the LeBarons, I don't know if we need to say too much about them. Uh, Irvin LeBaron, of course, was, was just an evil person uh, right from his earliest days, uh, if we follow his, his history there. So, but I, I think we can find in, in particularly like Rulon Allred, I think he was a good man who was just deceived. His brother Owen was also a mostly a good man. He, he had some problems with some uh, honesty issues, I think, later on as they're facing even today uh, the, the newest leader, Lynn Thompson, is is under anyway we can talk about that if you want but but i i've seen in that group and that's the one that my family member joined a lot of really good people there now the flds uh, we all know that story I, i'm not sure there has been a darker figure associated with mormon polygamy than warren jeffs and uh, the things he did in the temple um in the baptismal font in the celestial room the, that were associated with sexuality to me is, is truly some of the darkest stuff. And, and I, I had to stop listening to some of the tapes and things when I was researching that, that element a few years ago, just because of the darkness. So maybe, maybe I do agree with you, Lindsay. It's <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm, I'm glad that you're bringing up that, that it's not all dark because I know many good, good people who are practicing, uh, fundamentalists. So I, Definitely want to be careful about the distinction, but it has, it has weighed me down. Um, I was really sort of unfamiliar with the LeBaron case. So that was what I just has, have just finished. And we're going to talk about that later. Sanjeev Bhattacharya is going to sort of come on and talk about his experiences with Mormon fundamentalism. But, um, let's, let's back up a little bit. And we did sort of a timeline earlier in an earlier episode, sort of talking about the 1886 revelation and the history there. But I would love to hear your thoughts on that and sort of, move us into more modern-day fundamentalism? A great topic, and, and let me uh, explain why I, I say that, is that right now no one has written a definitive uh, work on the Mormon fundamentalist movement from 1904 to about 1954. Um, and my book covers uh, the 1904 to 1924 in one chapter. We need to have a whole book on that, a whole master's thesis or PhD dissertation could be done on that period because it's it's really a black hole for the fundamentalists. Most of them know nothing about what happened during that 20-year period. And briefly, what what uh, my research has uncovered and is that in 1904, President Joseph S. Smith came back from the Smoot hearings, having been grilled there, and he stopped all prospective uh, new plural marriages. You know, the church had done some secret ones for 14 years. It's it's embarrassing to us today, but he stopped them in April of 1904. From that point forward, he did not authorize any ad new plural marriages. And so there were a lot of people in the church, good people, a lot of them, who said, hey, I still think we should should do this. And so at that point, they went to three different sources 
they they went to uh, the apostles Matthias Cowley and John W. Taylor, who authorized a few. And of course, both of them were were dropped from the Quorum of the Twelve, and John W. Taylor was excommunicated. But they also went to temple sealers, who had been authorized to seal marriages before 1904, and they just kept doing it. Just didn't tell anybody what was going on. They you know the temple wasn't as crowded as it is today. They could find a corner and just do it. Um, the third source is patriarchs, stake patriarchs. If you read section 124, it tells us that they have the power to seal. Now, nobody's ever said it was to seal a, an eternal marriage, but the word is used there, and it's actually to seal a, a patriarchal blessing upon the head of the recipient. That's the sealing authority that, that if you look at from Brigham Young forward, when the question came up, that was the explanation. But these were the three sources that people would go to to try to legitimize plural marriages, because if we read section 132, verse 18, it anticipates this day. It anticipates the Mormon fundamentalist movement, because it says, if a man marry a wife and make a covenant with her for time and all eternity, meaning that they could have the, the ceremony completely correct as far as the words go, that if that cer ceremony is not by me or by my word, which is my law, and is not sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise through him whom I have anointed and appointed unto this power, then it is not valid, neither a force when they are out of the world. And and so it's saying that you can be sincere and you can have a tradition and you can have the words right, you can have an altar and you could really want it, but if you don't have the authority of one man who controls this 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 ordinance, and that's the key holder, then it's not valid. And so the focus of a lot of my research has been on, okay, who is that one man? And they say it's not President Monson. And so I'm saying, well, who do they say it is and how did he come to get that authority? And, and that's, that's what's where it's this. really messy, right? Because so, you know, from an LDS perspective, we say, well, of course you guys don't have the authority according to that scripture. But according to them, this is where we start to see these breakoffs of different stories, right? People claiming that uh, authority is given this one way and then laying on of hands by another way. And then some people just kind of wait around and then decide that they have it. It's it's really messy. Well, and, and even for the larger groups, I think it's it's kind of a problem because there is nobody claiming uh, to be the key holder during this period of time. And, and this is a, a new thing for a lot of fundamentalists. They imagine in their minds that, okay, Joseph F. Smith stopped in 1904, so a priesthood organization outside of the church took over and started to, to do all the polygamy right up until today. But that's not what happened. And uh, there was no leadership. Uh, they, they tap a guy named John W. Woolley, who died in 1928, as being the next head of the priesthood after Joseph F. Smith's death in 1918. But the problem is that John W. Woolley, while he did perform some plural marriages and was excommunicated for it, he never presided. He wouldn't preside over any meetings outside his own home. He never said, I'm the key holder. He never acted as if he had that responsibility. And when he, John, was excommunicated in 1914, Rather than saying he had special authority from some ordination in 1886, John said that he actually had been given permission from Matthias Cowley. So, so we find that, that, that John is recruited as being the head of the priesthood, but even during his lifetime, there's just no evidence to support that that I've been able to find out. And then his son, Lauren Woolley, after his death, uh, is the one who really came forth and said, I am the key holder, and I got it back in, 19, in 1886. And you, I understand you've talked about that, but the problem is you can't find anybody talking about the ordinations that 
that Lauren and others allegedly received in 1886. You can't find any reference to that until the 1920s. And I don't know if you want to spend a lot of time on that. I have an article coming out in Persistence of Polygamy on the 1886 revelation, and I go through all of the evidence there. Oh, but awesome. it's just it's just a big problem. There's no leadership until the 1920s. Yeah, and Lauren has several issues with his credibility, right? And it's not that just he waited till 1920, you know, to talk about this again, but I, there, there are all sorts of weird problems with his credibility. But I do see this sort of like, uh, and I think LDS Mormons do the same thing. We sort of romanticize our pioneer ancestors. And I do see that happening with uh, John W. Woolley. I mean, the the facts and the details of what happened sort of fall away and we get this sort of figure that that is romanticized. And, I, and from my reading, which is very limited, it seems like that is the take of uh, John W. Woolley, that he's become this sort of legendary figure and the details don't matter as much. Does that make sense? Oh, I like your assessment. Um, the interesting thing about John W. Woolley is that he's he's supposed to have received a or made a covenant in 1886 to make sure that no year passed without children being born in polygamy and to support polygamy at all costs. And yet he actually died only being sealed to one woman. And he was a polygamist with two wives for only six years of his life. Yeah. And his, his son, Lauren Woolley was a monogamist his entire life, except for the last two years and had no children by polygamy. So, so it's, it's a real difficult, to, uh, story to to validate Lauren was excommunicated not for polygamy because he was a monogamist he was excommunicated for claiming that he worked for the FBI and had insider information on Heber J Grant Heber J Grant heard about it and just said that's not true and they, he was excommunicated and and the information has not been corroborated i think Lauren was just a kind storyteller and he, his stories just happened to be what they were looking for at that time so tell me th- that's been the confusing part of my narrative that that they sort of accept this sort of carte blanche. And I know to an outsider listening to that's not LDS or anything, they would say, well, you guys did the same thing with Joseph Smith. But I, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that because with Joseph Smith, we have like multiple witnesses and we have all these accounts and we we have a lot more than we have with Lawrence E. Woolley and John W. Woolley. So where is the most compelling evidence from a fundamentalist perspective that John W. Woolley had the authority? Um, if I were a fundamentalist, I would say, well, look, he continued to do plural marriages right up until his death, even though he was excommunicated in 1914. Um, beyond that observation, I don't know that there's much you could say. There, there's some secondhand accounts saying that he talked about being the leader. Um, oh, he's got a patriarchal blessing that says he will be an anointed, but that language is very common. I talked to Michael Marquardt about patriarchal blessing language, and he assured me that that John W. Woolley's patriarchal blessing language does not indicate he's going to be the key holder or the president of the priesthood or whatever the title is. Um, but there, I don't find a lot there, and I don't mean to misrepresent the fundamentalist position. I just, I just don't, don't find it. Okay. Well, uh, so kind of take us in from this period, follow, you know, sort of the outline of your book. And I don't want you to give too much away because I want people to buy your book, but let's, let's start talking about how these sects start to form. Well, what we have is in the 1920s, Lauren Woolley is telling a story about how he was ordained to continue plural marriage outside of the church. And then by 1929 to 1932, he um, blesses and ordains uh, seven other people. 
into what he calls a council of seven friends. And they are supposed to be high priest apostles, and they hold a higher apostleship than the Quorum of the Twelve in the church, and they preside over the church. And this is well described. If these ideas have been totally discarded by the All Red Group, the AUB, and by uh, Warren Jeff's father, Rulon Jeff's, um, they stopped believing in a council of seven, even though that's the source of their authority. And the council that they have in the AUB has 10 or 12 people. It just varies. But they don't believe that their councils over the church. They believe that they actually are external priesthood just to keep plural marriage alive. And they don't preside over it. But the original description is, is it's in print. It, it's undeniable that that's what Lauren Woolley taught and Joseph Musser taught. But this is by 1934, you have this organization, and actually it becomes a kind of a rallying point because they have these claims that if you don't look too close, seem legitimate, and they can throw them up against the church. And so during this period, you have, I would say the 1930s was kind of the golden years for Mormon fundamentalism because pretty much the majority of these polygamists were united behind Joseph Musser, John Y. Barlow, uh, these leaders, and they were split between Salt Lake and Colorado City, which was Short Creek at that time. And then in 1952, we find a split. Yeah, I just have a question about that. So it seems to me from what I've, what I've read that the majority of Mormon fundamentalist groups uh, derive from the sort of Council of Friends, with the exception of a few groups that have claimed later sort of power or personal revelation. Is that, is that accurate? Well, I think you're alluding to uh, the independents, and these are, are individuals who often associate with one of the major groups, and then after a while they figure, hey, I don't need whatever authority they say they have. I can just do it on my own, and they do, and they're called independents. But the other two prominent lines are um, the Kingstons had a tie-in to a guy named J. Leslie Broadbent, who was the leader after Lauren Woolley died. But they've, they've kind of backed away from that, and they've said that their first leader, whose name was Eldon Kingston, went up on the mountain behind Bountiful and had a visitation from a dozen or so angels and, and former uh, resurrected beings, giving him all the authority that the Kingstons uh, ostensibly hold today. And then, of course, the LeBaron line is, is very interesting because... They assert that Benjamin F. Johnson, uh, who was an adopted son of Joseph, and I haven't verified that. It certainly didn't happen in the uh, the Nauvoo Temple that that reported adoption. But they said Benjamin F. Johnson received Joseph's keys and gave it to one of his grandsons, A. Dayer LeBaron, and then. Dayer had five sons who all claimed Dayer's authority at some point. Um, and again, the Irville was a bad dude, but there's a lot of good LeBaron people out there too, uh, having researched them. I, it's, it's an unfortunate sequence there. But those are the other two big lines besides Lord Woolley. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's really helpful. So, so after the Council of Friends, where, do, where do we go from there? Well, some of the confusion that, that, uh, in, in describing this Council of Friends, the collective memory of all of the participants only goes back to Lauren Woolley. They alleged that the Council of Friends had existed since Joseph Smith, but nobody can remember it or doc, uh, document it. Um, as somebody who has looked really closely at Nauvoo Polygamy, I assure you there was no such council there. But, um, but Lauren Woolley did not 
really define how the new leaders came to be the new leaders. Was it through the seniority of the ordination into the Council of Friends? Or could the senior member of the Council of Friends designate as a second elder who was going to succeed him? And so what we find is that Joseph Musser becomes sick. He has a stroke. And Rulin Allred, an atriopathic uh, physician, is helping him. And so Joseph Musser designates uh, Rulin Allred as his second elder, meaning that he's bypassing the seniority of the entire Council of Friends and that Rulin is going to be the leader of the group. And then Musser dies and and part of the group follows Rulin, and part of the group follows uh, the remaining council, which united behind a guy named Leroy Johnson. And Leroy Johnson was down in Short Creek, and Rulin was up north in Salt Lake, though part of Leroy Johnson's followers were also up north. But that's the real big uh, split. And I hope to have, uh, I hope you don't mind me plugging my website, um, Lindsay, but I have mormonpolygamydocuments.org. And I've already started to upload some fundamentalist documents, but I'll have some very interesting ones that talk about the split and the, the problems that Musser faced as he tried to figure out how Rulin was going to succeed him without offending the members of the council, and ultimately it didn't work. But uh, that that's the big split, and of course we can carry those lines through today. And I'll be honest with you, Lindsay, I'm not much of an expert on, on things after about 72. It just hasn't interest me. No, that's fine. That's fine. Um and and I'm I would encourage everyone to check out your site. We've plugged your other sites in the past, but absolutely the documents has been fantastic. I've actually been reading some of the letters already, so there's some great stuff on there. I let me throw some conspiracy theories out for you that I have thrown out um, on another podcast, and I want to get your take on it. So I've been talking to fundamentalists, and I've been talking to Mormons who have studied this, and I've heard some. Some conspiracy theories is what I'm going to call them. One of them is that, uh, of course, the LDS Church knew that John Taylor um, sort of gave authority through this line and that Woodruff didn't really have the authority. He was just supposed to keep the church busy. And so this is why the LDS Church represents more of a corporation than it does like a revelatory sort of Brigham Young, Joseph Smith type type church because uh, the line went through these real prophet seers and revelators. Do you want to speak to that? Well, sure. And one of the questions in my book, uh, Modern Polygamy and Mormon Fundamentalism, The Generations After the Manifesto, one of the questions I address is, if you talk to fundamentalists about when did the, the ceiling keys leave the church, you get some really um, different answers. You know, earlier I said it was with Joseph F. Smith, which seems to be the most popular answer today. Now, you've just said that the keys left the church um, when John Taylor died. And and that is one of the ones that has been promoted, though I think less so, unless unless there's a new group saying that's when it happened. The problem is there's no group to hand them off to in 1887 when John Taylor died. There is no, there's just no group. You've got the church leadership and the, the quorum of the 12 first presidency, and that is it. You, you can't find any evidence of groups meeting, of, of that they are in charge of plural marriages. There were plural marriages performed, and they were performed under the leadership of George Buchanan and Joseph S. Smith. Um, Wil, Wilfred Woodruff allowed them. Lorenzo Snow did not, and that's, that's a whole other discussion point. But Joseph F. Smith, of course, became the president, and he was the, clearly the key holder, and he stopped. But there, there's no group in 1904 to hand off this, this 
identity to and this responsibility. They they wish there were. They act like there is. But and and I don't mean to be overly uh, biased or negative, but it's, it's something I've looked at. I can't find any evidence for it until Lauren Woolley starts talking about 1886 ordinations, and that occurred no earlier than 1918. If you read Drew Briney. And Drew's done some research, but he hasn't found anything earlier than that. And I question that source, but certainly by 1921, Lauren is talking about it. So, so we end up with, with a great theory, but there's just nothing historically to support it. But let me also add, uh, since, since it's, it's an important point, I, I really think that the two biggest weaknesses for the fundamentalists today are one, their, their authority line is just, just indefensible. But secondarily, they don't do missionary work. And people may say, well, what's the big deal about missionary work? Well, if you, you know, in, in the Doctrine and Covenants, multiple places, God says that, you know, if you have my kingdom, you're going to be preaching the gospel. So wherever the kingdom is, that's where you're going to have missionaries sent out. And today, if you're going to send missionaries throughout the world, you're going to need to have some kind of a corporate um, organization. Every country has its own laws. There's going to be a need for, for some kind of financial uh, assistance. So the, the corporate church is getting a lot of bad press these days. But how are we going to send the gospel throughout the world using the techniques that Joseph and Brigham used? You can't do it. Teaching without purse or script is illegal in most countries these days. And, and it's just that people aren't connecting the responsibility to do missionary work with the, the modern needs that, that are required so and, and the fact that the fundamentalists haven't adopted that responsibility tells me they don't hold the priesthood keys because that key holder is responsible for missionary work. And these these leaders never sent out a single missionary. Well, no, the LeBarons did. But like you said, that that's a different case. I mean, they very much followed the Purser script scripture, quite literally sending their missionaries out with nothing. Um, but so I, I was not aware that the contemporary fundamentalism fundamentalists do not practice that would they consider you know their their pr campaigns and maybe television shows and television appearances sort of missionary outreach as far do you know anything about that yes and they they have told me that um and i disagree because what and, and even the lebaron missionaries were not sent out to baptize and bring people to christ they were sent out to convert usually uh, Utah Mormons, to polygamy. Yeah. And maybe there were a few exceptions, but when you read the emphasis of the leaders, you find no member missionary emphasis. In fact, I've read thousands and thousands of pages of Mormon fundamentalist talks and discourses and books, and nowhere in there do you find any member missionary admonitions. You know, if I were to join the Allred group today, my need to be a member missionary would go away, at least so far as what the leaders are telling me over the pulpit, because that's something for the mainstream church. We don't have to do that because we're polygamists, and and I don't see that that's, that's uh, something that you can defend uh, in light of Joseph Smith's revelations. Yeah, that's interesting. I never, I never thought about that aspect of it. And is there a sort of any accounting for that? Do, do they not? I mean, because another thing, another fundamentalist, you know, Mormon principle that I, that the LDS church has adopted that they have not is sort of this adherence to the word of wisdom. And there's sort of the spectrum of adherence to that in fundamentalism, right? Like the Kingstons don't have sugar, but some people drink alcohol and coffee's sort of frowned upon, but maybe okay in different groups. 
Well, I, I'm not certainly there are people who could speak to the word of wisdom better than I, but in 1912, I think it was, Joseph F. Smith did in a private communication say, we don't want people going into the temples unless they're obeying the word of wisdom. But it really was Heber J. Grant who championed it and made it man, a mandatory uh, observance before people could get temple recommends. And so so for the LDS church, that's it. So, but, you know, Joseph Musser, one of the fundamentalist leaders, he, he drank coffee and, and I, he may have, you know, taken alcoholic beverage, which of course occurred in Nauvoo. So uh, they would hold to that as being more fundamental. But but certainly Brigham Young wanted people to obey the word of wisdom, but he never made it a, a requirement like it, it later became under Heber J. Grant. Now, what about the aspect of continuing revelation? I mean, is there is there some sense in some of these groups that, oh, you know what, there was a law, let, let's take missionary work for for an example, that, that was important and now it's not because we've had a revelation. Is there any sort of thing like that happening that sort of cancels out some of the things that differentiates them from the LDS community? Does that make sense what I'm asking? The, well, the issue of continuous revelation is one of the half a dozen or so claims that they they level at the mainstream church saying that we haven't had any revelation and uh, nothing and thus saith the Lord kind of language. And and yet, to be honest with you, if you will look at the conference talks, um, just a year ago, President Packer came out and very bluntly said, uh, I know the Lord. And there's some history there. But these leaders are trying to tell us, yes, they they do know. Uh, they are receiving revelation in a, in an area conference. Uh, I think it was Elder Ballard looked at, uh, Elder Scott, who was on the stand and just said, you know, a few people know the Savior as well as Elder Scott. Now, these, you know, people will roll their eyes and, and poo-poo this kind of talk, but, but the accusation that the Lord Jesus Christ is not guiding this church is just without foundation. The brethren are telling us as plainly as they can that they are being guided by him and that they're fulfilling the, the full-fold mission of the church as visualized by Joseph Smith, that it would go throughout the world. Um, at least that's my take on it. Yeah, okay, so that that's helpful, and, and that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about, too, because I've had some very interesting conversations with fundamentalists, Mormons, who do kind of go the opposite route and say what you said. They said, you know, look, the church has not put out any revelation. And this is sort of the same thing that Mormon progressives will argue as well. Like, where's a revelation? Why aren't we talking about this? I, in fact, I think I've even leveled some of that criticism as well. And it's it's interesting for me to kind of see it align with fundamentalism now. Um, the, these comparisons that sort of progressive Mormonism takes with Mormon fundamentalism, but that's a whole other to- topic. But I, yeah, uh, there's one of the conversations um, someone was telling me, yeah, you know, the LDS church is really just there to give you guys busy work, which was their their term. And and that really stuck with me because if if you're looking in that sort of context, it does there is a sort of compelling case that maybe the brethren are just, that was their stewardship, and, and that's why they can't give women, you know, the priesthood because they don't have the authority to do that or or things like that. So there's this really weird intersection of Mormon fundamentalism and Mormon progressivism, if that makes any sense. Well, I think they share the same criticisms, and that seems to be what you've, you've said there, that, that they want to see changes in the church, and the church, of course, is, is not willing to make those changes. So... Uh, therefore, the church is not receiving revelation from the correct source. But 
uh, obviously I have a, a different view. I think that, that we are getting everything that if Christ was the leader of this church, we would be run exactly the way it's being run. And I do believe that he is. I think that the only way for the church to fulfill its mission and, and to take the gospel throughout the world, to build these temples, because the ordinances are the key. Uh, and this is this is something I keep telling the fundamentalists when I have a chance is that, look, even if you were correct, and I don't believe you are, but even if you were, for the sake of argument, where is the authority? I mean, do we not believe Joseph? Joseph said, one man holds these keys. You can't freelance polygamy. And, and they, this is, I believe that Joseph will be there at the judgment bar and maybe he'll quote section 132 verse 18, which I quoted earlier saying one man holds the key. My house is a house of order. And why didn't you believe me? Because there's one man and you need to find it. And it isn't the current leader of the AUB. It isn't Warren Jeffs and, or whoever Paul Kingston or whatever, whatever leader you want to uh, pick. So I, I want to push back on that a little bit because when I hear like, you, when you're talking about authority, you sound like you have this sure sense like that the LDS church has this sure authority. And we know during the secession crisis, it's really messy, too. So do you make any sort of account for for those kind of like that messiness? I mean, the LDS church sort of had this fight for authority, too. Uh, it's Of course, the dynamics were really different than with, uh, you know, the all red group and the Woolies and all of that. But how do you do you want to talk about that or is that something you'd rather not talk about? No, 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 no. I think it's a very good point. Um, and, you know, Mike Quinn, who is an excellent researcher and a very nice guy, wrote a, a, a milestone article on the secession quiet crisis in 1844. But if you look closely, there really was only one group that could have succeeded, and that was the Quorum of the Twelve. They were the only ones who had all the ordinances that Joseph had given. And if you read uh, section 112, there's a a couple of verses in there that indicate that, that Thomas B. Marsh, who was then the president of the 12, is able to go wherever the first presidency can, indicating that that is the direction. Now, that revelation had not been published uh, in August of 1844, but it does support that the Quorum of the 12 really were the only ones that could have gone forward and that the keys had been uh, given to Thomas B. Marsh, and then it would have gone to Brigham Young when Marsh apostatized. So I don't see it as messy as, as maybe Mike Quinn's article would imply, because if you look at who had the knowledge and the ordinances, there was really only one choice. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting and helpful for me to understand your position a little bit, because, you know, even in the Mormon feminist community, we're, we're kind of interested in this topic, you know, because the topic of women's ordination has been a big, you know, obviously a big issue in the last few years. Well, and, and for Mormon feminists for a long time. So, yeah, uh, so, so that, that's helpful to me. Let's move back into the timeline really quick. And I just, I want to see if there's anything else you want to say, because I have some more questions for you, but anything else you want to say about sort of these break off sects up until the Intel 54, basically? Oh, the, uh, you know, the, the fundamentalists had a raid down in Short Creek in 1945, which um, was very unfortunate. They, they imprisoned 15 men for uh, several years who finally signed their own manifesto to get out. I, I think that, that using the government to persecute these people could be fraught with problems. But I, I have to say that I think Texas was vindicated to some degree as they were able, if nothing more, to expose the debaucheries that 
that Warren Jess was performing with 14-year-olds, and, and I don't recommend listening to the tapes. As I said, I listened to a few and stopped, but um, just, you know, they had to, to do a lot of, of family destruction to get to that guy, but but he is so dark and evil that that I think they were vindicated, but I don't think they were in 1945 when the state of Arizona invaded uh, Short Creek. So can maybe we, that's, Can we talk that's about all. that for a minute? Because sure. this is really important too, and, and this is something that I saw if if I were a fundamentalist, I I mean I I'm not a fundamentalist, so I don't know, but I see this sort of really Mormon narrative of persecution, right? And we know that the raid, and we and I I'd like you to t- tell us some of the details in just a minute, but it really sort of it was terrible and it was very traumatic to these people, but it also sort of crystallized we are the chosen people because you know like our ancestors in the 1870s and 1880s, here it's happening again. We're being prosecuted by federal marshals and then we go back to you know the early utah period where they're breaking off and starting their own zion and then we go back to nauvoo so it's this very mormon narrative having this this sort of government tension that the lds church doesn't really have in the same way anymore that that the mormon history has kind of carried on throughout its legacy and even with warren jeffs i mean i think if I were a part of his group, I would just see this as another sort of validation of the Mormon story. Now it's our people, our generation's turn to face a sort of prosecution and persecution. I think you've hit the nail right on the head. And, and let me correct something that I said. The uh, the 1945 raid and, and imprisonment is, is a sad story because they put these very old men in a, a prison that was located in Sugar House in, in uh, Salt Lake City. And the, the conditions were very poor. And it, it's a sad story. There's uh, Arnold Boss kept the journal. And, and it's it's interesting reading, but it makes you feel bad for these people. Even yeah, if the you kids don't are like crying and, and their um, daddies are being taken away. Yeah. Well, actually. Actually, actually, that that's that's where I misspoke. In 1953 is where we have the raid. Okay. And and this is Short Creek. And I, I mentioned the two are connected. They weren't. In 1953, um, they had sent out some uh, individuals posing as Hollywood. Uh, producers who were looking for some people to be in a movie. And so they went around and they took pictures of all those dwellings and took down names. So they had all the information they needed. And really the, uh, the fundamentalists there knew what was going on. They, they'd had insiders that had reported on them, but, but their leader at the time, Leroy Johnson was just saying, Hey, we're just going to, you know, take it. And they were, uh, not, not fighting back. And then the raid occurred, and it, it's interesting because to summarize it, the children were taken by the juvenile courts of Arizona. They had to bus them all over to Kingman, and it was a horrible bus ride, it, just an awful experience for everybody. But the problem was they had all these children, and if they didn't leave the mothers to stay with them, they really didn't have the ability to take care of them all. So they made a late decision to let their mothers, the polygamous wives, to to stay with the children and then they would put them into foster homes and it took some of them up to uh, two years before they were finally let go but they didn't prosecute the mothers and they really didn't do much with the children other than haul them away from short creek for six months to two years and put them in foster dwellings some of which were good and some of which weren't um and then but after two years, all of the women and the children had returned. And then ironically, though, the fathers were arrested, indicted, and they were convicted and then immediately paroled. So they returned back to Short Creek within weeks and found, of course, that their wives and children were still tied up in the foster care program in Kingman. And only slowly did they uh, 
find their way back to Short Creek. But two years after the raid and after spending over a million dollars, which was a lot in that day, um, nothing had changed except that these people had become solidified against the government. And as you said, um, great observation that this type of persecution serves to unite people. Um, rather than divide them. I'm, I, maybe this isn't a good example, but in World War II, when they were dropping uh, the, the V-1 rocket on, on London, the, the Germans thought this would break their, their backs and, and their will to fight, but it did nothing of the sort. It actually just rejuvenated them against the Nazis and hate and a desire for revenge can be very strong in that, in that view. And, and if you're a persecuted religious people, it, it can have the same effect as far as a unity and, and a desire to continue with your with your previous lifestyle and, and beliefs. Yeah, and we're going to talk about this weird tension later on because there's sort of this weird debate going on with contemporary fundamentalism about the decriminalization of polygamy. And the, of course, the same argument happens in a lot of sort of, you know, legislation like this, like in human trafficking and prostitution and things like that. But it, the argument is, if they decriminalize polygamy, which some fundamentalist groups do want to happen, and it has happened, they're just saying, let us live how we want. But other other people are arguing that these groups actually need it to be illegal because that is how they've developed their whole culture and their doctrine and sort of uh, their theology now around this idea of secrecy and the underground and hiding from the law. And, and with the raid that you're talking about, it's important for my listeners to remember that these people, these women that you're talking about that were on the bus, they would have been children of women who would have experienced the raids in the 1870s and 1880s. So it's very much like, you know, the story of like reliving what their mothers and their grandmothers would have lived. Certainly they would have remembered the stories and, and felt uh, probably that they were doing something very similar. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah, yeah. It, it, there's just so many interesting tensions, and and I want to go back to a point I was talking about earlier. I think the hard part for me is, as a progressive Mormon who has blogged about these issues and blogged about reform in the current church, it was kind of startling and a little bit disturbing for me to see my same arguments being used in Mormon fundamentalism, because I've grown up thinking Mormon fundamentalists are weird and strange and wicked, and then to sort of use the same tools, if you will, to talk about the church, that was really, really difficult for me to sort of process. So I'm kind of like at this place right now where I feel like our us Mormons are Mormons, and we're just like on this spectrum. And even ex-Mormons fit into this category. We all act out these really Mormon narratives in different ways uh, to a matter of degrees. So it's a lot to process, I think. Where, where, where do you stand on that? Well, let me let me just go back briefly to a point you made earlier, that if they legalize polygamy, and uh, I had a, a church historian, an employee of the church historical department, uh, about probably even five years ago, tell me that he figured within 10 years polygamy would be legal in America. And, and certainly that's being pushed up the, uh, the judiciary right now, so it probably will hit the Supremes. Whether the Supreme Court's going to look at it or not, we'll have to see. But the interesting thing is that if we have both uh, polygamy, legal polygamy and legal same-sex marriage, and uh, what we then could have is per a person could be married to any number of people and there would be no law that could limit the number of individuals. And it's called omnigamy, uh, where just everybody's married to everybody. 
or network marriage. And, and I suggest that. And again, this is a time for some people to just roll their eyes and say, Hales is really out there. But it is, it's, this is a true idea. I had an op-ed in the Salt Lake Tribune a few months ago, um, entitled, Are We Ready for the Time of Omnigamy or something? But just where I pointed out that, you know, you can't tell somebody they can't be married to 50 people if, if polygamy and same-sex marriage is, is both legal and those people could be, of whatever gender that you would want. And the problems occur if, if marriage is giving any kind of an advantage, like if somebody's trying to immigrate into the United States, being married, if that gives an advantage, you can see that being abused pretty easily. And then, of course, the tax implications are, are pretty huge. And I, I would probably predict that if we do see uh, legalization of polygamy and, and same-sex marriage, and both seem to have some momentum to that end, that probably we'll find that marriage uh, will become a, a legal, uh, I don't know, right that really won't mean very much. Uh, that Because from a legal standpoint, it'll, it'll be just an agreement between two people, but it won't have any tax ramifications or any, any other really legal benefits or, or anything. I'm guessing that's probably what will happen. Otherwise, the, the poor tax... Uh, uh, collectors and, and the, the IRS and the immigration services for the, the country may find themselves really uh, uh, struggling. And, and there may be other ramifications that, that uh, would also enter in. So it'll be an interesting uh, uh, process to see how it, um, how it unfolds. Yeah, and and this is, of course, something that's been hotly debated, and I know that many of my gay rights activist friends would really hate that comparison, so I want to be careful about the comparison. It sounds like, and you can clarify your position, but it almost sounds like you're saying, at least how I'm interpreting it, that this sort of Mormon doctrine would be to blame to watering down the definition of marriage. Are you opposed to polygamy being legalized? Um, I personally don't care. If it is or if it isn't, it isn't going to affect the, the church's position, I don't think. I mean, that's just my opinion, and right. and it's free, so you're getting your money's worth on that. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I don't think the church would care, I think, um, and I don't want to get into the same-sex marriage uh, issue. Right. But if, if we do see the two of them, we're, we're seeing a redefinition of marriage, we're seeing a redefinition of family. Um, I think um, that... If, if I, as a believer in the eternal possibility of heterosexual marriage, um, as somebody who believes in that, I, I see it as a negative. Um, and, and I would hope that it wouldn't happen. But again, I don't want to get all of the same sex marriage proponents, uh, on my, on my uh, back. I have a son who is gay. And so I, I, I'm dealing, you know, I deal with those things as well. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I do think it's interesting that, uh, you know, I just did a podcast with Sarah Berenger Gordon and Lori Winder-Strongberg how uh, polygamy was really tied in with slavery, right? The, the hot issue of the day. So it's interesting to see it sort of getting tied into this other hot issue of the day. I just, I don't know what that means. I just find it fascinating that uh, this, that Mormonism, Mormon issues kind of become this crux of like American politics, right? There's a lot of things revolving around, around the transformation of America. And, but how would you contextualize the idea of traditional marriage and maybe Mormon polygamous marriage? Everyone always says, well, Mormon traditional marriage is one man and 45 women. <laughs> well, and, and it actually, it's a really good question there. The, uh, 
or point that you're making, uh, I would argue that Joseph Smith's Zenith uh, teaching is not polygamy. It's eternal marriage. And if we read section 132, and to be honest with you, I don't think people read it. I don't, I certainly don't think that they, they are, are taking it at, at its face value because the language is really pretty unambiguous most of the time, um, especially in the first two thirds of the, of the section. But if you get, uh, verses 19 and 20 tell us if a man marry a wife, it's a monogamous couple and, and they do it by proper authority and they live worthily, then they become gods. And it's monogamy, it's it's eternal marriage, it's exaltation, and there's no mention of polygamy anywhere. But then we also find that God commanded the saints between 1852 and 1890 to be polygamists. And we don't know why. There's no other people in the 6,000-year you know, Judeo-Christian history tradition that has been commanded to be polygamous, but they had this special commandment. And and so they had to also not only do eternal marriage, but they had to do polygamy. And and they were blessed for it, you know. But other prophets like Adam did burnt offerings, so did Moses and Abraham. But we don't do burnt offerings. But they, they aren't going to receive some greater benefit because they did burnt offerings uh, benefit over what we receive because we don't do burnt offerings. And I argue that it's similar to polygamy. Polygamy was a very unique commandment issued for that period, but it itself is not salvific. It doesn't bring exaltation. It's the eternal marriage, and that just requires monogamy. That is Joseph's pinnacle doctrine and the, the most important uh, ordinance that, that we all will need if we, if we seek the blessings of exaltation as Joseph described them. And that's why I appreciate you coming on so you could help give context for that perspective. It's not a perspective that I share. I tend to think as polygamy as an interesting experimentation that didn't have good fruits. And I don't believe it was from God. So I, I appreciate you giving that context. And I also, I think I would disagree. I, I think whether it was essential or not, and, and you have argued this case, and you have compelling evidence, I still think that the majority of saints in frontier Utah believed it to be essential. And we know stories of women who made their decisions based on their eternal well-being. And for me, that matters less as a Mormon woman, like looking back on history. But if obviously, if I was confronted with it now, that would matter a lot more if it was an essential doctrine. And so I, I like that you're providing a context that gives gives people sort of an out of that, because it is such a deeply painful doctrine to so many contemporary Mormon women to grapple with. So I so I just appreciate your giving a context for that, giving an out for Mormon women. I think that women of faith that want to sort of understand and maybe believe polygamy was of God, that's a helpful context. So I appreciate that. Well, let, let me clarify one thing, because I, I, I've i had pushback on a, for me, it's a straw man. Um, I, I do agree with you that women and men between 1852 and 1890 were taught they needed to be polygamous to be exalted. What I, I don't believe is that any of them were told that any person living at any time or place had to be a polygamist to be exalted. That's where I, I think people are misunderstanding. Absolutely, they were taught they had to be polygamous during that span. But if you look at the Book of Mormon, there's no mention of it. I mean, this is not something that is applicable to all gener- dispensations as a commandment. It's always going to be part of eternal marriage doctrine if we read section 132, because there it tells us every man and every woman needs 
needs an eternal spouse or they can't be exalted. And polygamy will allow all of the worthy women to be exalted. It's, it's in, it's in there in pretty plain language in section 132. But again, I agree with you that during that span, women were taught that they had to be polygamous to be exalted. But that's not to say that any man said that every person in the celestial kingdom will be a polygamist or that they're going to have to practice polygamy because We've got the Book of Mormon, the New Testament, and lots of other prophets who we think were single, or I mean monogamists, in the Old Testament as well. Oh, that's a really interesting interpretation, and it, I think it's kind of helping me understand your position a little bit more. So uh, so you seem to seem like you take, uh, you privilege sort of the contemporary prophets, as, as we're taught, over prophets of the time. And so prophets are, you know, over the people of their time. And those people are supposed to live that doctrine at that time. And so am I understanding that position correctly? So those people, it was required for their exaltation, but it's not required now. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And, and in Adam's day, we needed to perform burnt offerings or we would be disobedient and be condemned. In Abraham's day, we needed to circumcise all males or we would be condemned. In Moses's day, we had to live the law of Moses or we wouldn't have, uh, we would be condemned. And, and during that period, we had to do polygamy or we would be condemned. But we don't live the law of Moses or circumcision or burnt offerings today or polygamy. But we are not going to be penalized for not doing any of those because God will command as he commands and he never gave us a reason why polygamy was then commanded beyond what we find in in uh, Jacob in the book of Mormon where it says if I will raise up seed unto me I will command my people otherwise you will uh, you know observe these things and these things was that was monogamy so it was just a, a specialized commandment for that time and place every person in the celestial kingdom will not be a polygamist women will not have to share their husbands I don't believe polygamy will ever be commanded but again that's just an opinion from a guy who probably doesn't know very much, but I just don't think it'll ever be something that women today need to even worry about. It was an awful thing. I, I think it's very sexist and unjust, but God commanded it as he has commanded lots of very difficult things in the past to prove his people, and I'm just glad he's not commanding it today. Yeah, okay, so that's fascinating to me, and I really appreciate you explaining that. And uh, I mean, I, I have some feminist problems with that, like, because it makes me uncomfortable to suggest that, like, some women, you know, had to live this higher law as opposed to women today. Like, that's, that brings up problems for me, but it's a valid interpretation of Mormonism, for sure. So I don't, I, I'm not trying to, you know, debate you or criticize you on that at all. Um, it's not, it's not an opinion I take, but I, that is really helpful. And I think it's a really interesting interpretation and probably a very helpful one for people that really struggle, like, with this concept, what would you, what would you do though with the quotes that we hear from Brigham Young? And of course, I'm thinking Journal Discourses, Jedediah and Heber C. Kimball and John Taylor, even that polygamy would never leave the earth. Well, I don't, I challenge you to produce those quotes. First off, um, there's two that are really popular that everybody always talk about. One is Joseph F. Smith saying that there is an idea that people can marry one wife. And this was, I think, 1878. Um, and I, and then receive exaltation. I want to tell you that I know it's false. And this is really popular with the fundamentalists. The problem is that earlier in that, in that very same discourse, he had contextualized the practice saying that it's only applicable when it's commanded and it isn't uh, pleasing to God if people try to do it when it's not commanded. 
it's applicable to every dispensation, but not commanded in every dispensation. And then the other very popular uh, quotation is from uh, Brigham Young, where he, he talks about everyone needs to be a polygamist. But earlier in the, the same discourse, he said, we need to be polygamists, at least in our faith. But I am unaware, maybe, Lindsay, I mean, you, you've done good research. Maybe you found something that I've missed, but I'm unaware of any statement from a general authority, a quorum of the Twelve, First Presidency, saying that every person in the celestial kingdom is going to be a polygamist, or the idea that to be exalted, a person must practice polygamy, uh, irrespective of when or where they have lived on this earth. But if you can find such a quote, then I need to be quiet, And, and uh, uh, but I haven't found it. Yeah, maybe this is a this is a topic that we should pick up later, and then um, we can do some research, and maybe the maybe we can do this at Sunstone. I don't know. Hey, that'd be great. <laughs> uh, Brian, I just really appreciate you coming on and willing to talk and willing to to go on the fray. And I know that your position is difficult for people that don't have faith, and I understand that. But I also I just really really appreciate that you're still will- willing to engage with people uh, that disagree with you, and I think that that is the key to to all of this, just civility. And, and I, and I've seen you do that well. And so I really appreciate that. Well, you've been very gracious to me, Lindsay, and I, I appreciate that. Again, I, I do have faith. I do believe. And people call me an apologist. I just wish they called me a believer. But uh, if, if I'm wrong, then I'm more than happy to discuss it, which is why I've tried to make all my documents available. But thanks for having me on. No, absolutely. And we'll go ahead and link to your, uh, your books and if there's any, and, and your site and then your Mormon fundamentalists. Is it mormonfundamentalism.org? Did I get that right? Um, well, there's josephsmithpolygamy.org yes. that my wife and I have and then mormonpolygamydocuments.org. And then I do have a very old site, mormonfundamentalism.com. And it's, That's there was one. no editing and my wife is just totally embarrassed. She says, you can't tell anybody I had anything to do with this and oh. she didn't, but it's got a lot of good information. Yeah. On it. You know what? I, I, before you go, I have to say, um, when I was reading about the Tucker case, like it was so great to get on your site and see the pictures you have on there because, and we'll talk about this later on for the listeners, but there's this great picture of the missionaries coming from France and they're just, you know, so excited. And it was, it was just such a powerful photo for me. And I found that on your site. So that was really cool to, to find that picture. Well, I put a lot of work into this, but again, it's had no editing. It's, it's pretty rustic in, in many ways. Well, uh, with that disclaimer, I would still encourage people if they if they want some good information that they can go and they can pick up your book. So thanks, ag- thanks again, Brian. And uh, we will see you guys again on another episode of Feminist Mormon Housewives Podcast.org. Thanks so much, Lindsay. Thanks.